Wisdom isn't about dealing with ignorance. Wisdom is about dealing with foolishness. And foolishness has to do with misunderstanding. Understanding is to appropriately grasp the significance or relevance of what you know. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is an award-winning lecturer in the departments of psychology, cognitive science, and Buddhist psychology. Since 1994, he's taught over 8,000 students at the University of Toronto, where he's currently an associate professor in cognitive psychology and cognitive science. He's also taught courses in the psychology department on thinking and reasoning with an emphasis on insight, problem solving, and higher cognitive processes with an emphasis on intelligence, rationality, mindfulness, and the psychology of wisdom. And if all that doesn't sound fascinating enough already, he also teaches a course on Buddhism and cognitive science. His uniquely passionate style of teaching has earned him nominations for numerous teaching awards, including being awarded the highly prestigious 2012 Ranjani Josh Excellence in Teaching Award. So please help me welcoming our guest today, a man with an enduring passion to address the meaning crisis that troubles our Western culture, Dr. John Verveke. Dr. Verveke, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today. I appreciate having you here. Thank you, Harper. It's good to be here. That's a rather glowing introduction. <laughs> so thank you very much. Oh, it's a um, pleasure. Yeah, so I'm excited to, uh, to talk a bit about the meaning crisis and the work that you're doing with your, with your uh, research and teaching. But before we get into all of that, Let's learn a little bit about you. Where did you grow up and what was it like there? Uh-huh. So I grew up in Dundas in Canada, which is near Hamilton, which um, is in what's called the Golden Horseshoe. And Hamilton's about, you know, an hour's drive west from Toronto, if that helps anybody. So um, Hamilton is basically, or was, as things have changed, but it was basically the Pittsburgh of, of Canada. It was the biggest place for the production of steel in Canada. But Dundas was this town r- right beside it, a little town, much more set in the country. So that's where I grew up. I grew up in fundamentalist Christian family and extended family, which which over time I've come to have, uh, I guess what you'd call a deeply appreciative ambivalence towards. I mean, that version of religion traumatized me, I think is the fairest way of putting it. But on the other hand, it's like the way English is my mother tongue. It gave me my mother religion. It gave me an introduction to a way of thinking and being and aspects of human psychoontology that uh, I think are important and relevant. So while I reject 
a lot of the theology and the metaphysics, that sense of human beings trying to do something within a religious framework that is of, of enduring value stuck with me. And so trying to reconcile my rejection of that fundamentalist Christianity with my appreciation for the sort of psycho-spiritual existential dimensions it disclosed to me has been a big part of my journey, a big part of my journey. And, and originally that was pretty much a personal journey. But then in university, I encountered the figure of Socrates and the cultivation of wisdom became central to my thinking. I took up a bunch of practices uh, to drawn from Eastern traditions, Tai Chi Chuan, Vipassana, Metta, uh, to try and cultivate wisdom. And then what's been happening is I started noticing that cognitive science was now shifting and giving me tools to reflect on that in a scientifically deep manner. And as I did that and started to, to work it out, I noticed as I was bringing those elements into my the courses I was teaching my students, that was the material they were most attracted to. That was the, what they most, and I started to get a sense of maybe this isn't just me. I mean, egocentrism aside, it was maybe there's something bigger, you know? And so I opened up the argument, took a look, and that got me into this idea about there being sort of more a more comprehensive thing happening in the so-called West, what I call the meaning crisis, and that many people are going through something where they're trying to reconcile how to recover the cultivation of wisdom and self-transcendence within a predominantly scientific worldview. So that's sort of how I got where I am. That's absolutely fascinating. And I'm really, really interested to get into the, the meaning crisis and, and this, this, this area where you, you, you speak about uh, super fascinating. But before we get there, I'm, I'm curious, at that young age, what, what did that rejection of that fundamental Christian kind of upbringing look like? Was it you just researching other religions and getting into other religions? What does ah, that kind of look like? So when I was around 15, that's when that's when the rejection happened for me. And it happened because I read a science fiction book by Roger Zelazny called Lord of Light that exposed me to Hindu mythology and Buddhist thought. And I read Siddhartha around the same time by Herman Hesse, which exposed me to a lot. And I also uh, was had read Fifth Business by Robertson Davies in high school. I was reading it at the time and it exposed me to the thought of Jung. And so all of these things really sort of blew me open. And I started thinking about uh, mythology and spirituality and self-transcendence and altered states of consciousness. And I found that that was opening up my imagination and giving me access to areas of my own mind and my own consciousness that were not being properly accessed or activated by the Christianity that I've been brought up in. Now, please be clear. I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that all of Christianity suffers that famine. I'm just talking about the particular version I was brought up in. And so uh, it, uh, what happened to me is more it's a combination of things. There was the awakening of a kind of hunger to explore these aspects, the mind and of reality that were being disclosed to me. But there was also an anger. It's the kind of anger you have when you feel like a lover has betrayed you, like you've been jilted or betrayed. So I felt ang very angry at the way that version of Christianity had betrayed me. It had, and, and only much later upon reflection and therapy, did I see that, that that was deeper than just a betrayal. It was very much a, kind of a traumatized, well, more, not kind of, it was a traumatizing experience for me. So it was a mixture of things for me. And, and as you can imagine, for, you know, you know, a 15 to 17 year old kind of process that, that combination of this you know, it's like it's like I'd been living in a cabin on top of a mountain and the, the walls blew away and then I could see in all directions. And then I was all like, why didn't anybody ever tell me the world was like this? And then of course, I'm also scared because I'm alone on top of a mountain. Right. And like and so that was a pretty 
devastating experience for somebody uh, of that age. So going through that process was also very challenging. It, it took a, a long time for and a lot of education and some therapy and some other stuff to give me the tools to start to get it into a shape in which it was a vector and an affordance for growth rather than just being pulled in multiple directions at different times. That's really, really fascinating. Like I, I grew up in the in the Eastern t- tradition. My my family is that uh, is sick. I, I still think I consider myself sick, like not sick as in physically sick, but sickism, the the religion. Yeah. And for a period of my like early twenties, for some reason, I don't understand why I started getting deep into just researching about Christianity. I just found it fascinating, like the history of it and right, right. And, and everything related to it. I just found it super fascinating. But for me, when I was growing up, Sikhism was, uh, is almost presented through like a Western or Christian lens. Like there's this yeah. God up top, just, you know, that personified it like it was the Christian God, which, you know, as I got older and started to understand the religion a bit more, it's like, oh, that's really not what it is about. Right. I kind of, in a sense, kind of understand that, that betrayal that you're feeling, but I definitely want to get into to more of the, the meaning crisis and, and things like that. But there's one, one thing that you're talking about in, in some of your lectures that I found really fascinating. I think the audience would enjoy this too. It's this insight problem solving. And right. my audience is mostly data scientists. I figured they'd yep. love to to hear about this. So talk to us about what insight problem solving is. Ah, so <laughs> that takes a little bit of work, but it, it's based on the, the seminal work of Newell and Simon. And so they analyze intelligence as the capacity to be a general problem solver, to be able to solve problems in a wide, a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. That's how you're an intelligence system. And something like a vending machine is not an intelligence system, right? Because it basically can handle one or two problems in a very limited domain, right? And then the idea is, well, what's, what it is, what is it to solve a problem? And then they analyze a the problem into components, a representation of your initial state and of your goal state. And you have a problem when there's a significant difference. For example, when I'm thirsty, my initial state is I lack water. My goal state is there's water inside of me. And when there's a significant enough difference between them, then I have a problem. And then the idea is there are operators. These are things I can do, actions I can perform that will change my 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 state. I can raise my right arm, raise my left arm. I can sing. I can talk. I can smell. I can taste. And then the idea is by putting together various combinations of sequence of operations, I lay out potential pathways that might possibly take me from my initial state to my goal state. And what Newell and Simon, what their, why their work was so profound is it revealed something we didn't realize, that sort of mathematical representation of all the pathways, all the potential, path, all the potential pathways between the initial state and goal states, it's often combinatorially explosive. It's vast. So uh, Keith Holyoke gives the example from a game of chess which is, you know, you, you calculate the state space, not the state space, sorry, the search space, F to the D, where F is the number of options at any turn, D is the number of turns. So for an average chess game, you usually have about 30 legal moves on average available to you. There's 60 turns, so that's 30 to the power of 60, which is more than the number of uh, atomic particles in the universe. So you can't search the whole space. You can't search the whole space. Now, what Newell and Simon talked about was heuristics versus algorithms. Those terms have slipped around a lot. But the original meaning was, you know, an algorithm pretty much does something like an exhaustive search. You can do some a priori things to sh- shave it down, but it's, it's, it's still approximately exhaustive. Whereas a heuristic really tries to limit your search by pre-specifying what you should pay attention to. And, and that's important. All the work on heuristic and biases forms a big part of the work I do on intelligence and rationality. But what Newell and Simon didn't see is the difference that your problem formulation makes. The problem formulation is 
the way you represent your initial state, your goal state, your operators, and what are also called path constraints. Path constraints are you only choose solutions that don't aren't detrimental to your ability to solve other problems. Like for example, don't don't choose a solution that will take seventeen thousand lifetimes to do because right, then right you're not going to solve the problem and you're going to not solve your other problems. And what happened? What they realize? What we I think what a lot of people have come to realize is that problem formulation. When you change problem formulation, you really change the shape and size of that space in a dramatic fashion. So we tend to concentrate on the solution, but most of the heavy lifting is actually done in the problem formulation. And not only does the problem formulation sort of constrain and limit your space, it also helps you select which heuristics you might apply. So problem formulation is doing a lot of the heavy work. So what, what an insight is, is, I'm going to give you three components of it. So this is the first, the first component of an insight is when I replace a problem formulation that will put me into a combinatorially explosive search space with one that doesn't. And I give various examples of that, like the mutilated chessboard. If you formulate it one way, it's a combinatorially explosive search. But if you just notice something else and make that the relevant feature, then you, it becomes a very small search space and you can formulate it like that. So that's one thing an insight is. You replace a bad problem formulation that will put you into combinatorial explosion with a good one that will help you avoid combinatorial explosion. That's one thing you do. But you also need insight in another way. So let's go back to problem formulation. There's an important distinction. Again, Nolan and Simon didn't have this distinction between well, well-defined or well-formulated problems and ill-defined problems. You know, problems don't exist objectively. They exist relative to a person. But I would assume relative, like relative to you, that 24 times three is a well-defined problem. You know, what, you know what the initial state is? It's a multiplication problem that gives you a tremendous amount of useful evidence. You know what the answer should look like. It should be a higher number. It's, it's not a drawing of a platypus or anything like that. You know the things you can do in between. You know everything that's irrelevant, right? So that's a well-defined problem. And now compare that to what we're trying to do here, which is have a good conversation. What's the initial state? Well, silence, that's not particularly helpful. What's the end state look like? Well, we're sort of satisfied that we had a good conversation, but what does that look like? What are the properties of it? What, 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 well, I should say things. Well, what things? And when? So the ill-defined problem. Going on a successful first date is an ill-defined problem. Telling a joke at the right time. Like most real-world problems are ill-defined problems. What's lacking in an ill-defined problem is a good problem formulation. So another kind of insight is when you have an insight that turns an ill-defined problem into a well-defined problem for you. Then there's the third kind, the third dimension. I, I'm presenting them analytically as distinct, but very often insight problems have all of these elements together. Okay. The third is, right, you've probably seen this. It's a famous example of the nine dot problem. You give people nine dots and they have to join, you say, join it with four straight lines. And the next line has to begin from the terminus of the previous line and people think it's easy and they draw the square and then, oh, and then they can't solve it. And the solution is you, you join the all nine dots by going outside the square. There's no square there at all. And people get pissed off because they say you cheated. You went outside the square and you say, I never said square. You're seeing that as a square. You're thinking this is a regular connect the dot problem where you don't make non-dot turns, et cetera, et cetera. So the insight there isn't, right, isn't so much it's an ill-defined problem or combinatorial explosive, it's that the way you have framed the problem has made the wrong information salient to you. And so what you need in an insight is to restructure it so that the relevant information is salient to you and, the, and, and you correct for the mistake of 
information that you have inappropriately deemed like perceptually or cognitively relevant. And so typically what happens in an insight is you're manipulating, you're, you're restructuring your problem formulation so that, and it's either and or or, right? You're avoiding combinatorial explosion. You're replacing an ill-defined problem formulation with a well-defined problem formulation. You're coming up with a problem formulation that corrects for the way in which your salience is, what you're finding salient is misleading you from solving a problem. And insight is that sort of structuring a problem formulation that does one or all of one or two or all three of those. And the most powerful insights are ones typically that have all three elements and also are higher order insights. One more point, and then I'll let you talk, which is right, some insights are just of themselves of, of a particular problem. But, and this is something that Piaget pointed to in child development, some insights are higher order in, in that they're not an insight just into this problem, they're an insight into a, a kind of problem. There's, there's a realization, oh, wait, all of these share this same bad problem formulation and all of these can be restructured. And so those are some of our most powerful insights when we do all three changes and we do it for a higher order kind of insight problem. I hope that was helpful. I absolutely love that. I absolutely love that. That's so fascinating. Like it, you kind of start by, if I'm understanding this, you, you think of the future as if it was a probability distribution, right? Yeah. You think of, yeah. of the state you are now to the state you want to be. Everything in between is a probability distribution, which is way too combinatorically expensive to compute. So you use a yeah. set of heuristics to then say, all right, let's search in this space for an optimal solution. But it could be that we might just attain like a local optimum, but the global optimum yeah, exactly. is out here exactly. somewhere. Exactly, exactly. So how do we how do we know if we're stuck in like one a, a local optimum? <laughs> so you you really don't know you were stuck until you've had the insight. So it's not a foresight thing. You don't say, "Hey, I'm stuck and I need an insight." It's only retrospectively when the insight occurs that you realize that how you were limited in some way. And then the inter- the interesting question for me is, well, what's the process that brings about that restructuring of the problem formulation so you get you get that aha moment where you realize, oh, this is how I can solve it. Now, there's a long story there and one that I think you can, I mean, I, I teach an, an entire course on it, you know, but so I can't give something that I could really quickly epistemically justify here. But the, the gist of it is, it's not something you sort of infer your way through. Uh, basically, what it looks like, and this is convergent from work with machine learning, is basically you, you basically throw some noise into the system because you're relying on your you're relying on the dynamical system of your cognition. You're relying on its potential to dynamically re-self-organize. So you basically, you throw some noise into it the right way, right? And, the, and you're relying on the capacity for the system to re-self-organize in order to restructure. It looks like, again, we have to take all of this, like this is all still being researched. So I want everybody to understand that. But it looks like the way, what the sort of triggering event for that you know, throwing noise in and restructuring is a, a sudden shift in, uh, from the left hemisphere to the right hemisphere, and then a shift back from uh, the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere. And that is, that's the way in which you sort of break out an inappropriate framing. And then the right hemisphere is way, way more willing to explore problem, different problem formulations. And then you bring that back into the left hemisphere. So it's basically kind of this, this self-disruption opponent processing, I, I would suggest, between the left and right hemisphere that affords that that capacity for insight. 
That's super, super fascinating. Uh, I think I might have to go back to school and register in your class on this topic because uh, <laughs> sounds like something I would really enjoy. So, like problem formulation, I think is super important, especially as as you know, for data scientists, machine learning practitioners, because if we don't formulate the right problem, we'll end up solving something completely unrelated to our initial yeah, yeah. what we're initially trying to do. So, when it comes to formulating a problem. Is that is there a cookie cutter recipe to make that happen, or is like is there? A- well, there are things that there are things you can do to improve it, and and they tap into sort of that stuff I was talking about the hemispheric shifting. So the experimental evidence is that if you enhance your cognitive flexibility, you will enhance your ability to go through that restructuring process of your problem formulation. And so if you're asking what sounds like sort of a pedagogical thing, how can I learn to do this better? You can't sort of learn how, like an algorithm. Insight, but what you can do is you can engage in practices that will increase the cognitive flexibility. Now, because and like like I said, I have an argument for this, but I don't have time to give it. Because it's not primarily an inferential thing you're doing; it's an intentional thing. What you're doing is learning how to redirect your attention. You can even notice that that you can notice that uh, that I want to show you what I mean. Notice how you have two you have attention right now, right now between focusing on me and zeroing your attention in on me. And then there's a part of your mind that's saying, no, no, let's drift away. Let's think about other stuff. Let's daydream, right? Let's go out. And what you're doing it, and what you're doing is you're constantly moving between those. And a way of thinking about that that's a little bit stronger than just an analogy is it's very much like what happens in evolution, where you're getting a process that's introducing variation and then a process that's inducing killing off most of the options. And then you zero back and you, you're constantly like an accordion going back and before them, back between them, and you're constantly evolving. And then what can happen is you can do things that sort of increase the range at which that cognitive flexibility occurs by increasing the range at which you can at- pay attention to things. So mindfulness practices are very conducive to enhancing insight. I recommend, given that argument and given quite a bit of empirical evidence about what insight, is you want, you want two kinds of mindfulness practices. You want mindfulness practices that get you to step back and sort of really look very closely at the mind, right? Really sort of zoom in on the mind. And those are meditative practices. And then you want right practices that get you to sort of zoom out and look more deeply into the world. The metaphor I, I use for people is like this. I, so I'm wearing glasses right now. Right. Meditation is what like I step back and this is like looking at your your problem framing, your problem formulation. I step back and look at it. Right. That's meditation, because maybe I can see something on it that I didn't see before and then I can clean it. And then when I put it back on, that's contemplation. And I look now, how do I know if I've cleaned it? Well, when I look again, do I do I see better than I did before? Right. But how do I but it might be that I I'm not quite seeing as well as I do. So I step back, I take it off, I clean and I go. I cycle back and forth between meditative and contemplative practices that significantly increase my cognitive flexibility. And then given another argument that published in 2018, this also helps explain why mindfulness practices enhance people's ability to get into the flow state. Because I think there's a deep connection between that cognitive flexibility, the capacity for insight, and the ability to get into the flow state. That's super fascinating. And when it comes to like mindfulness practicing practices, you mentioned uh, meditation as one can can you know just going out for a walk or just journaling can these be considered mindfulness practices as well it depends it depends what you're doing with them right 
I think there are what I call psych- there are many psychotechnologies to like a psychotechnology is a standardized way of formulating, formatting, communicating information that sort of is designed to fit how our cognition works and enhance it in reliable and systematic fashion, like literacy, for example. Right. And so there are psychotechnologies like mindfulness practices that can do that. There are other ones. So journaling is particularly good for another kind of move that helps insight. And this is particularly why journaling is used in therapeutic context when you're trying to get people to have insight. So this is work that my colleague and co-author, we've, we've co-authored on a paper together, Igor Grossman talks about, calls it the Solomon effect. And let me describe it to you. And then you'll see its relevance to journaling right away. So if you get somebody to describe a, pro- a really hard problem that they have, the people inevitably describe the problem from a first person perspective, especially if it's complex, messy, ill-defined personal situation, the kinds that really perplex us and really wear us down and right cut, cut us up. So people describe it and they'll describe it from the first person perspective. Then you ask them to do the following. You say, could you please re-describe that problem from the third person perspective as how your friend might describe the problem. And now, and then what happens is when people re-describe the same problem with a third-person perspective, they often get an insight into their problem. That's called the Solomon effect. So when you write things down in your journaling, if you make it and, and you have the opportunity, right? If you have the opportunity to make the what you're writing down to be more of a third-person perspective, that can afford insight, especially also because you're externalizing your cognition. You're putting it on the page. You're not. So this is why journaling is, is better than rumination. Problem with rumination is you're holding everything in working memory. And that's too ephemeral. You won't see. It's, it's like trying to see evolution by, by looking at like, you know, a speck of like one little piece of a fossil or something. You don't have a, you, you can't, it's not, you don't have a big enough scale to see larger term patterns. But when you write things down, you externalize, you can see those bigger patterns. And if you do it from the third-person perspective, you can also get insight into them, and that can be a very effective practice. For for all the programmers and coders in the audience, they might recognize this as rubber duckying, where you just kind of have a pretend rubber ducky that you're explaining this piece of code that you're stuck on, and all of a sudden, oh, wait, I know what I have to do. Right, right, right. So there's been similar work done with Berlin, what's called the Berlin Paradigm by Baltes and Stoninger. You put people in a situation... So what you've done is you've done about a lot of pretesting. You find the kind of problems that sort of help you help you distinguish between people we would more readily call wise from people that are just sort of normal. And what and so you get a sort of way of measuring that. And then what you do is it, when people are in this situation, if you allow them to imagine talking to another person, they will inevitably do better on the test than if they don't. So there is an inherently dialogical nature to all of this, which is also why I'm so fascinated by dialogue. Yeah, that's super, super interesting. So it reminds me, I was reading this book recently. It was called Hair, Hairbrain Tortoise Mind by Guy Claxton. And he's talking about... Oh, Guy two, Claxton, yes. Yeah, yeah. Two modes in the in the brain. One of them he yep. calls, uh, I believe it was D mode, where you're just kind of letting your mind wander and not focus, right? So kind of like that that analogy you're getting yeah. glasses on and off. And in those states, when we kind of let our mind wander, it's where we get most of our creative ideas and and, you know, we're stuck in a problem, all of a sudden we'll get the, the answer, the solution by doing that. So I'm, I'm curious, like, do you think creativity is something that can be taught, that can be learned, or is it just a personality trait? So it depends what you mean by that, because the central question, I would argue, that faces us when we talk about creativity and, and we want to get beyond sort of decadent 
pop pop culture romanticism about creativity, in which we just blather and say nothing of importance. Creativity is the is the blah is the blah is the blah. Like that go, that that's useless. So the central question, if you want to try and get this into a tractable problem, is you want to ask yourself: Is there anything to creativity above and beyond insight problem solving? Right. And so I've already ta- told you we 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 seem to have increasing evidence for things that reliably increase our capacity for insight. And then you might say, but insight isn't enough for creativity. There's other things that are going on. And there's some candidates you should consider. Maybe creativity isn't just insight. Perhaps it's the ability to enter into the flow state. Perhaps it's an ability to shift between modes, right? Uh, between what's called the, ter- the telic or the paratelic mode. Because maybe there's a motivational arousal affective aspect of creativity that's not being properly captured by the more cognitive aspects of insight. And so I, I can't answer your question in a simple way because we're still, I would argue, and this is where we are. So I'm trying to be intellectually honest, trying to figure out what it is, like what's to create, what is in creativity above and beyond insight, I think is the central question. Now, here's what I would, now not speaking just as a representative of the field, but my own particular, my, what my own particular argument is, is I think there is some things to creativity above and beyond insight. And then we can ask what those are and what kinds of practices help to train those additional elements. I think insight is an important component of creativity. So you want to do things that train that, but then there are things, there are things above and beyond insight that are central to, to creativity, uh, motiva- motivation, meta-motivational states, things like that, that need to be taken into account. Also, even your, what you might call your, and this maps on to that meta-motivational stuff, Usually in what we, when we call it insight, what we're doing is we're using the insight machinery to solve a problem. When we call it creativity, we're using the same machinery to find a problem, to find a really good problem, right? And so one of the ways of thinking about that, I'm not claiming it's exhaustive, is what we do, often what creativity is, is here's a problem and here's a problem and here's a problem and here's a problem. And we think they're independent and they are until somebody comes along and says, but wait, if I were to solve this problem, that would solve all those other problems. You get that sort of higher order. And so they find a crucial or central thing. And you can see, you know, Einstein doing that, where he's taking things like, you know, he's taking the speed of light, he's taking acceleration and gravity, and they're being treated as separate things. And then he realizes, wait, there's a problem here. And if we solve that problem, it'll solve all those other ones. And we go, wow, what a creative mind. So I think what we need to ask is, if we're trying to increase creativity, how do we increase insight? How do, we inc- how do we increase these other factors? And how do we get people to use the insight machinery not to solve problems, but to find problems? And what, what I can point to you about that that connects to some of this other motivational stuff is the distinction that Fuller makes between wonder and curiosity. We tend to treat them as synonyms, but they're not. So curiosity is very much where I feel like there's a, a, a gap in my knowledge. I'm ignorant. And I'm trying to find something that will fill it, right? So solving the problem is the key issue for me. That's why if I prolong your curiosity, it's aversive to you. Like you're reading the whodunit novel and you never get to the end. Like you get pissed off and angry and frustrated, right? But wonder is different. Wonder is not where you're trying to find an answer. Wonder is where you're trying to call more and more into question. And that's why if I expand wonder, you find it as a more positive state. You find it as the state of awe. and so. Learning to reliably distinguish between them and learn uh, curiosity is a good thing. Uh, you, you understand, I'm not criticizing it. But if we're talking about the affordance of creativity, learning how to wonder, learning how to get into awe, learning how to get into the flow state, 
learning how to get into the paratelic state rather than the telic state. The paratelic means doing something for its own sake, where the telic means doing it for the, the external goal. All of those things, if done in conjunction with you training the insight machinery, will, I would predict, make you more creative. Never really thought about that distinction between curiosity and wonder and the way you put it just, it makes so much sense. Yeah, that's, uh, wow, that's really, really, really insightful. Insightful, talking about insight. <laughs> so I like what you're talking about when, uh, you know, going back to creativity, talking about Einstein, how he's combining these things. It's like, yeah. you know, we can say that creativity is kind of like the union of sets in a yes. way. Yes, it's, it, it's seeing a potential union that, that hasn't been seen before. And you can see that's why that's like the problem formulation machinery, right? But now you're not so much trying to solve the problem. I mean, Einstein did both. He both found a great problem and then solved it, which is like, whoa, that's the best, right? Uh, yeah. So I want to start getting into the, to the meaning crisis. And I think before we do that, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, it might, might be a good place to kind of start by talking about this concept of the, the axial age. Um, sure. So can you help us understand this? What is the axial age? Uh, when did the first one start? Why do you think it started? So, I mean, there's a, a good book on this. It's Karen Armstrong's book, The Great Transformation. Some, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, well, of course, there's a lot of academic controversy around it because it's a historical claim and there's no historical claim that doesn't have controversy surrounding it. So some people want to talk about an axial stage rather than an axial age, meaning that different civilizations at different times go through something like this. Uh, the original idea was Carl Jasper's idea that several civilizations went through similar kinds of changes at around the same time. And the basic idea is this, and, and this is why I think there is some credence to the idea of the axial age. So we, we had an extended human being, sorry, had an extended period of advanced civilization known as the Bronze Age. And it starts roughly around 3000 BCE and it goes and you get, you get huge, complex civilizations with Babylonian, the Hittite Empire, Egypt, of course. Uh, you know the Minoans, the Mycenaean, on and on and on. The, uh, you know all these, all these great, uh, all these great kingdoms, all these great empires. And an analogy I I, uh, I picked up, and I can't remember where I picked it up, is think of these like the dinosaurs, right? And they're just dominating the 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 sociocultural environment, right? And then for reasons that are also in dispute, although the the event is not in dispute, but what the cause of it is in dispute, we what what's what's called the Bronze Age collapse. That civilization around 1200, not that civilization, all of those civilizations, and it was a massively interconnected world, collapses. It's the biggest collapse of civilization the world's ever seen. It dwarfs the fall of the Western Roman Empire, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a huge, and one way of thinking about it on the analogy is the dinosaurs are wiped out by some asteroid event, some extinction event. And what happens is all the mammals start to speciate. And what happens is you get a lot of little kingdoms that all speciate in that gap. Well, first of all, there's just like a crushing period where everybody's just trying to recover. But as they start to recover, and there's the loss of literacy, there's the loss of commerce, there's the loss of everything, right? But when you, what you see is a lot of little kingdoms start to emerge, and there's a lot of social experimentation. And there's also a, a, a lot more sort of, you know, sea travel and other things are going on. Again, it's, it's unclear. But what's happening in all that speciation is a lot of experimentation, right? Uh, a lot of social experimentation, a lot of cognitive experimentation. And what happens is you get, the event, you get the invention of some really interesting things, psychotechnologies. You get, the you get the invention in Canaan, one of the places hit hardest, by the way, by the Bronze Age collapse, 
of alphabetic literacy. And then the Phoenicians take it up and they're doing this weird thing where they're sailing all around the world and creating colonies, right? And then that alphabet gets taken by the Greeks and they standardize the reading and they add in vowels. And this, like, um, just think about le- what literacy does to your, co- your power to, like, if I imagine, do the reverse. I take literacy from you, not language, literacy. Imagine how, how shrunk your capacity for solving your problems, even your self-awareness, because you can't journal anymore, for example. So what happens is literacy, alphabetic literacy makes literacy available to many more people. So this is a tremendous empowerment of your cognition. The same thing with numeracy. Numeracy comes back. Coinage is invented, and coinage is an abstract symbol system that follows arithmetic rules that you have to calculate. So people are thinking in all of these new ways, and it's just permeating their cognition and their consciousness. And it's empowering them in ways they're not foreseeing. They're not even trying to make it happen. But what happens is they get the ability to reflect critically and more rigorously, right, on their own cognition. And they become more critically aware of the way in which the mind is the source of suffering and disaster. That's why all, a lot of the literature from this period is about how, you know, the mind is the, the beginning of things and how everything might be an illusion or how everything's decadent. And the Axial Age was the creation of a new worldview to try and accommodate all those changes that were happening in human cognition. So the previous, in the Bronze Age, you have a continuous cosmos. There's no hard line divisions between animals and human beings and the gods. You can become a god just by, by becoming extremely powerful. It's right. It's, but what happens with the Axial Age is people are trying to make sense of this. They're becoming so aware of the mind's capacity for self-deception that they come up with like a, basically a two-world model. There's the everyday world. It's the world we live in that's beset by all this self-deception. And then there's a higher world. It can either be above us or it can be in the future, the promised land. It can be in heaven. It can be the world that's not decadent. It could be the world behind the world of illusion. It can be nirvana behind samsara. But you get this two-world idea of the real world, which is different from the everyday world, which is a world of illusion and suffering and violence. And you get this idea that our primary we, are, we don't belong here. We're pilgrims. We're travelers. Our, our goal is to get, and, we just, you know, and, and you say, oh, I don't believe that. You believe it temporally. I bet you do. You carry this idea, well, we have to progress. There's a better world ahead of us, right? So you can lay it out in time. You can lay it out in, stru- uh, in space or in structure. But the idea is that we don't fundamentally belong, and we have to figure out how to transcend ourselves into a state in which we realize the real world and we come into a more fuller realization of our true humanity, our true nature. And this is, and so you get all of these axial age wisdom philosophies that are born at that time, trying to give a mythological image to try and express and articulate the way the human cognition was being fundamentally changed and to try and harness it uh, to give people a way of dealing with self-deception in a comprehensive manner. Sorry, that was a bit long, but there's a lot there. No, I absolutely love that. That's so, so deep and fascinating. And I mean, I encourage everyone, I'll link to the show notes to, to check out your series on this because you go really, really in depth on, on all these yep. topics. Absolutely love it. So are, are we now in another axial age? Is, is that where we are in, in our modern society? Well, the thing about it is, is let, let, let's compare something like the Axial Age worldview, which is historically created, 
with something that's more perennial. So for reasons that we can sort of see what we were previously talking about, the very processes that make us intelligent, adaptively intelligent, right? That sort of ongoing evolution, we formulate a problem, but notice that, you know, we need insight because the very processes that help us zero in on the relevant information can also mislead us or make us misformulate, or we can use a heuristic to avoid combinatorial explosion. But the problem is every heuristic also commits you to, you know, the no free lunch theorem, it commits you to a certain amount of inevitable bias that is going to be self-deceptive and self-destructive. So in my work, we talk about the heuristic and bias approach. The two are always linked together. So the very processes that make you adaptively intelligent make you perpetually vulnerable to self-deception in that very key ability of having an, uh, having an ongoing, evolving capacity for problem formulation. Okay, so what you need is you need to learn things you need to learn psychotechnology that will help you ameliorate the self-deception that arises when you're trying to use your intelligence as a general problem solver. So this is a perennial problem across cultures, across historical periods. Human beings have looked for sets of practices that will help them ameliorate self-deception and will also help them to enhance, we haven't talked about this very much, enhance meaning in life, enhance that, that really fundamental sense of connectedness to yourself to other people in the world that makes life worth living. I, I, and many people would agree with me on this, many I call that that set of practices that helps us reliably and systematically deal with self-deception and increase our sense of meaning in life. Those are wisdom practices. Now, the thing about practices is you have to, they have to be home. They have to be situated, right? They, they have to have a place that makes them intelligible, makes them fit in with your, your other aspects of your life. And that, that, so we create, we typically create places where we engage in particular practices. But your worldview is your ultimate home. It's the home of all homes, right? And so we had a bunch of practices that arose within the axial age worldview, the two, the two worlds worldview. You can see Buddhism and Taoism and the prophetic aspects of Judaism and blah, 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 blah. The beginnings of Platonism and the whole Socratic tradition and the Hellenistic, all of these things are, take, are emerging at that time. And they all emerge and they're powerful and they find a wonderful home in this two worlds mythology. And they give us a sustained set of traditions for how to cultivate wisdom as opposed to knowledge. And what's happened is, you know, because of the Rene, uh, well, there's a lot, I won't pick a particular <laughs> villain. What happens is we have completely undermined that two worlds mythology. We have completely undermined it. We've undermined it in so many different ways for a whole bunch of historical reasons. And we've undermined the, for many people, the world religions, world philosophies that emerged are no longer viable for us. And I'm not insulting anybody. I'm just pointing to statistics, the demographic statistics. So is this the, the essence of the meaning crisis then, this, this it, self? This, this is it. We don't have, so notice if I ask you this, you know, where do you go for knowledge? Well, science and the university, okay. Where do you go for information? Well, the internet, you know, social media. Where do you go for wisdom? Yeah. Good uh, question. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you go? Where do you go? There, there used to be ready answers for that. People used to, our cult, most, most cultures will have an answer for you like that. Our culture used to have an answer and it doesn't anymore. Notice, notice this weird thing about the scientific worldview. The scientific worldview gives me all of these explanations, but you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't give me an explanation of how I generate scientific explanations. I and you, as the users of meaning and the pursuers of truth, 
don't fit into the scientific worldview. We're presupposed by it, but we don't belong within it. And we don't know how these practical, you know, when we talked about mindfulness, I'm sure some of your listeners are like, mindfulness, so oh, that's so granola. How is this going to help me? Well, right, it's because you and I have become orphaned from wisdom institutions and wisdom traditions for historical reasons. And, you know, and some of them are like, you know, are, are justifiable things. I myself was hurt by an existing religion. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I am not, 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 not. Let's turn back the clock. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we need an ecology of practices, everybody does, to deal with pervasive self-deception, to afford enhanced meaning in life. We need, in that sense, to be cultivating wisdom and self-transcendence, but we don't have a worldview that tells us how to do that in a way that is legitimate, that is homed, that we can, we, like, we don't have a basis for saying, that's a good person I should look, look, look to for wisdom. We, 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 our, our worldview says, that's a good person who I should look to for medicine, or that's a good person I should look for for building a bridge, or that's a good person I should look for for, you know, finding out the structure of the atom. But how do I decide what's a good person to go for to cultivate wisdom? Culture doesn't give you any help whatsoever. That's the meaning crisis. So before we dig deeper on this, on, on cultivating wisdom and all that, help us understand this distinction or difference between wisdom, information, and knowledge. Well, I mean, I'm using information as, you know, as sort of the, as not quite in the, you know, the, the Shannon sense of information theoretic. I'm talking more about how that information sense of information theoretic becomes something that has some semantic and or procedural or and or existential meaning for you, right? And so that's just what information is. It's the translation of a technical theoretical sense of information into what's often called cognitive information and cognition. So that's all I mean by information there. And, and that's fine because that helps me understand a lot of processing, like how your working memory works and stuff like that. So knowledge, well, first of all, I think there's more than one kind of knowing. That's something we could also talk about. But knowledge is basically, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm really hesitant here because I, I, you know, I've, I've got degrees in philosophy, so I know epistemology is the most controversial thing. But we have a sense of knowledge as something, right, that how, helps us track reality in a reliable and repeatable way that affords us justifying the use of the certain sets of practices or techniques, et cetera, et cetera. And that can be at a theoretical level. It can be at the level of our skills. It can be at the level of certain perspectives. We can talk about that later if you want. So with knowledge, basically, and this goes back to like curiosity and wonder, and Socrates famously said that wisdom begins in wonder. Knowledge deals with the problem of ignorance. You don't know. And what it's really concerned with is, and you'll have, if you'll allow me to use this very broadly, it's concerned with evidence that helps us you know, come to good conclusions about how to fill those holes in what we know, how to deal with our ignorance. Wisdom isn't about dealing with ignorance. Wisdom is about dealing with foolishness. And foolishness has to do with misunderstanding. Understanding is to appropriately grasp the significance or relevance of what you know. There's a famous line in, in Tolstoy, The Death of Ivan Illich, where, you know, and it, it, Ivan Illich bangs his side and it doesn't get better and it doesn't get better. And it go, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it goes something like this. Ivan Illich always knew that he was going to die the way he knew that two plus two equals four. But now he knew he was going to die. And you go, oh, right. I get the difference. He's grasping the existential significance of his mortality. He hasn't got new evidence for it. 
And that's very much a kind of insight. In insight, you're not changing the evidence. You're changing the relevance of the data. You're changing the relevance of the information. And so wisdom is about not so much about evidence. It's about relevance. And about, it's about relevance to overcoming foolishness and enhancing and affording meaning in life. And so, I mean, the crucial thing there is to think about in what ways, well, no, let, let, me, let me do it another way. Notice how we, even within science, we tolerate this distinction in a powerful way. Let me give you a clear example. This goes towards, I think the name, I think the name of the author is Elgin, your book, True Enough, but other work. Open up, uh, you know, uh, introductory textbook and physics and go to the section on atomic theory. And there you'll find the Bohr model of the atom. It's mostly false. It's mostly false. Why do we teach it to people? Because we still teach it. Why do we teach the Newtonian stuff, right? But let's stick with the, the Bohr model. Why do we teach it? It's mostly false because it helps us to understand. It, it helps us to get trained in looking for the relevant kind of information, asking the relevant kinds of questions. It helps us to think, oh, maybe I can understand chemistry as moving between valence shells. It, it, it transfers, it affords insight. It changes the relevance. We see things insight. We see things better. Now, if somebody was to say, why do you have that in there? That's so false. It's static. Like the, the, atom, the atom isn't organized like that. There's no not little round particles. and Like that's all false. You go, you don't, it's almost ironic. You don't understand. We're putting it in here to help people understand. We're not making claims. Well, why? Because in addition to trying to give people the correct true beliefs, we want to give them the correct abilities and capacity to understand, to ask questions, to wonder, to reflect, to come to a place, in fact, where they could think, oh, the Bohr, atom, Bohr model of the atom isn't true, et cetera, et cetera. See, so wisdom is more about insight and understanding and relevance and wonder than it is about evidence and knowledge and the satisfaction of curiosity. That is so, so relevant to the machine learning practitioners in the audience because we're building models. It's not like there's a random forest out there that governs the way that this particular data generating process behaves. This is just what we're using to kind of understand it. Yes, right? yes, yes. So let's get back into to, to wisdom then. How do we cultivate that within ourselves if there's kind of a scarcity of a wisdom institution? And it well, can but, kind of help us understand what a wisdom institution is as well. But that's, you know, that's kind of the problem because the problem is if you look, for example, at the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, these are people who have no religious affiliation and they're, they're, they are the fastest grow, one of the fastest growing demographic groups, right? They're not all sort of Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins atheists. That's just not what's going on. Many of them, in fact, the most common way they describe themselves is spiritual, but not religious, which is a very, very oxymoronic thing to, kind, to say, although I understand what people are trying to convey with that. What that basically means is they have the religion of me, and I put it together autodidactically, which means I put it together in a rather fragmentary fashion, a rather ahistorical fashion, and I put it together in a way that I haven't really checked all the ways in which my all the biases that I'm engaged in are actually reinforced by being an autodidact. That's why autodidactism is such a dangerous thing, because all you do is it's like, and, and notice how social media makes that worse, because everybody is an autodidact with respect to social media, they just select. And what they do is just, it's just confirmation porn. 
They just confirm, it's just confirmation bias all over the place and the representative bias and all kinds of equivocation. And it's, it's, it's horrible. It's a horrible mess. So the social media actually makes, it affords it in one way in giving people access, but it exacerbates it in another way. And so my concern is precisely that people are doing this in an autodidactic, ahistorical, fragmented way, which is often a cure that is plausibly as bad as the disease for many people. So let me give you one example of this. It's not, it's not exhaustive. I'm just giving one example. Many people go into this and engage in a kind of what's called spiritual bypassing. This is the psychological phenomena where you get interested in spiritual things and you do these practices as a way of actually not confronting how you're being self-deceptive and self-destructive in your life. It's foolishness. It's spiritual foolishness. But who's there to tell them this? Who's there to correct them? Who's there to challenge them on this? So, you know, I precisely worry about the fact that we are trying to do this in this individualistic, fragmented, autodidactic fashion. So, I mean, what you need is you need an ecology of practices. You, like, remember, I said earlier, you need both meditation and contemplation, for example, because they train you in different directions. You need ecologies of practices, sets of practices that are dynamically related to each other, that are acting as checks and balances on each other, are, are, are complex and self-organizing to deal with the way that your cognition is multi-leveled, recursive, complex, and self-organizing. That's why, you know, Buddhism has the eightfold path and other, and it's represented by a wheel that rolls and all kinds of stuff like this, right? You need an ecology of practices, but you need to set it into a community, a community that's been put together by what I call dialogos, the kinds of conversations we have where we are conversing not to convince, we are conversing in order to connect, not just to communicate, but to commune so that we can be sharing a process. Like we could get, so collectively, we can get into the flow state. We can get into collective insight. We can get in collective restructuring so that we can use the tremendous power of distributed cognition and collective intelligence to give us some community of guidance for how we cultivate, curate, and vet our ecologies of practices. And I understand why that's problematic because the two things that want to tell us how to do that, the state and the market, are two things that we rightfully do not trust us because they're not interested. They're deeply not interested in wisdom and they're not interested in you becoming wise. So I understand why what I'm saying is problematic, but I do not see, that's why I talk about stealing the culture. That's why I, I do not see any good alternative other than to bottom up create communities of practices, and then communities of communities. And this has already happened, happening. This is not a pipe dream. I'm talking to all these emerging communities and the communities of communities. This is happening, and I'm trying to help afford it happening. That's how we can build the place where we can cultivate wisdom in a way that has a chance of helping us ameliorate the meeting crisis. It's not easy because people want to connect. Let's just meet up with my buddy at the brewery, grab a couple of pints, but that's not really, no, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. So let's get into the stealing the culture. Uh, talk to us about what you mean by that. I guess if you can just give us that idea of what this culture is that you're, you're trying to steal away and, and bottom up. Well, I'm trying to steal away from a culture that is organized around, I mean, we'd like to think we're, we're, we're not religious, but we, we have gods. There's the state, 
and there's the market and right and 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 I'm not an anarchist and I'm not some sort of crypto marxist I'm not saying that what I'm saying is they're like all complex dynamical systems they self organize and they can evolve in ways that are were not anticipated by you know at their origins just the way we couldn't predict human beings emerging in the center of the cretaceous period right you can't that's not how it works these things have evolved in ways and they've taken on a life of their own and Far from us, they're, they're, them so much serving us, we more and more are serving them. And the service that they do for us and the service we give for them is not organized around these topics we've been talking about. Because there used to be three things. It used to be the state, the market, and the sacred center, the church, the temple, the mosque, the synagogue. And that's fallen away. And what's happened is, right, and, and then the market. And so the, we used to be able to pit the three against each other. We could always get the any two to gang up on the other one if it was getting too big for its britches. But we've lost that. And what's happened is we've lost it. We've lost the, the wisdom center. And then the state and the market have become deeply, deeply interwoven uh, for various historical reasons. And that evolution has precisely got to a place where that machinery is not the machinery that is designed to help cultivate wisdom. It's just not designed to do that. And so when I talk about stealing the culture, I'm talking about trying to create, again, a community of community. So my model here is like the early Christian church. They didn't try a revolution against the Roman Empire, and they didn't try some, uh, you know, inventing some new product. That's not what they did. They built small communities, and then they networked the communities together. And what they invented was a new way of life, a new way of seeing, a new way of being, a life of agape. And then that basically captured the culture bottom up. And that what led to this, the change of the state, the change of the socioeconomic system. That's the model I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not talking about a political revolution. I think politics is exactly the wrong place to try and resolve the meaning crisis. It's at the wrong level. It's, in the, it's got the wrong formulation. And, and I think the market is the wrong place to look for a solution to the meaning crisis. I think it is, it is properly a cultural problem that has to be solved in a culturally creative fashion. That's what I mean by steal the culture, that we do something, and it's already happening. It's already happening. It's already happening. Here, here's the thing that we, we like, let me just, like, for example, again, I'm not some crypto Marxist. I just want to point out the, the cognitive science here. There's some profound confusions. So for, for one thing, we, we think there's a direct relationship between wealth and subjective well-being. Subjective well-being is your sense of, well, I'm really, uh, things are going really well for me, right? Initially, wealth is very predictive of subjective well-being. To the degree that wealth gets you out of poverty and a scarcity mentality, it predicts subjective well-being. But once you're out of there, you have to do vast increases in wealth to make small difference in subjective well-being. It becomes irrational to pursue wealth. That's just the way it is. The second thing we do is we confuse subjective well-being with meaning in life. We think that, well, the more contented I am, the more meaningful our, our lives is. And that's kind of bullshit we've been sold. Because here's a situation in which the two radically come apart. Have a kid. If you have a kid, your subjective well-being collapses. Your health goes down. Your finances go down. Your social life goes down. You're hungry. You're tired. You're always wet. There's alarm bells. That's the kid crying, constantly going off. Cortisol is flooding your system. Reliably, people report their subjective well-being crashes. And you say, well, why are you doing it? And you know what they say? It makes my life more meaningful because I am connected to something bigger than myself, something beyond myself. We have a culture in which the market tends to make us confuse and conflate together wealth 
subjective well-being and meaning in life, and they should all be radically distinguished from each other. That's just one example of what I'm talking about. And that's not an ideological claim. That's not me saying capitalism is bad or Marxism is good. That's me saying, does this do what we claim it does? And let's look at the empirical evidence. That's what I'm saying. Yes, absolutely. And as a father to an 11-month-old baby, yeah, I know. <laughs> I can resonate with that uh, subjective well-being and uh, being a father thing. Yeah, it's not easy. Oh, man, there's some so much more that I wanted to ask and I know we're running up on time here. So I guess we'll begin to, to, to wrap it up here. Uh, I'm curious, do you think this pandemic age and all of us being virtual now and, you know, apps like clubhouse, for instance, do you think this is kind of helping to facilitate these wisdom institutions or does something need to kind of be more formal in place to make that happen? It's, it's happening, you know, so, you know, I, I get to go, you know, on rebel wisdom and the SOA and other things like that. And my own, and my own stuff voices with Raviki. It's definitely helping to build um, dialogos and not just information dissemination, right? Not just broadcasting or not just propaganda. Remember propaganda means it propagates, right? So, yeah, it's, but there's a lot more that needs to happen. I mean, getting into this is really important, but it has to situate within, you know, a whole bunch of practices, you need journaling, mindfulness practices, active open-mindedness practices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to be doing this. And I think the pandemic has helped afford this, but it's, while necessary, it's far from sufficient. Definitely encourage everyone to check out the Stoa. They do these. What are they called? Wisdom gymnastics. Uh, yeah. Wisdom, wisdom gym. Yep. Yeah. Definitely check check that out. Um, it just I think it's just the Stoa.com or something like that. Or just type yep. in the Stoa. It'll pop up on on Google. Uh, so last formal question before I jump into a real quick lightning round, and that is, it is 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? Bringing back a Socratic voice to the public domain. Absolutely love it, and I think you are with your with your series of videos, which I will definitely link to um, in the show notes as well. Uh, the Meaning Crisis series is amazing. And you guys check out what Akira the Dawn has done with Dr. Verveke's Dr. Uh, lecture on stealing the culture. It is absolutely amazing. Made it into such a, a hot fire track. Oh, um, yeah. I just love the wet work. I'm so yeah, pleased with what yeah. Akira has done. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is phenomenal. So let's jump into a real quick lightning round here. First question is going to be a little bit heavy, but I'd love to get your response to this one. Do you think you have to achieve something in order to be worth something? No. If we take, it depends. I mean, I think the moral worth of a person is not based on their achievements. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. What are you currently reading? I'm currently reading Hyper Objects by Timothy Morton, Platonism and the Objects of Science by uh, Scott Berman. I'm currently also reading some books on internal family systems therapy, a book called Self Therapy. So there you go. Nice. There's much like me. I read like three or four books like at the same time, kind of yep. just to let yep. the ideas bounce around in the head and and have idea sex and come up with idea children. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly the right thing to do. What song do you currently have on repeat? I don't know if I do. I I I, I on Spotify. I actually have a playlist called what I call mystical. And it has a, a wide range of things like uh, strawberry fields by the Beatles or, you know, various canticles from the middle ages. So that, that's what I'm, that's what I'm constantly playing right now. That playlist over and over again. Nice. I'm going to have to have to get the, the link from uh, to that from you. So let's go ahead and open up the random question generator. This will be a lot of, a lot of fun here. 
Uh, first question we got here. What is something you can never seem to finish? What is something I can never seem to finish? <laughs> well, uh, that's a good one. I'm trying to think. I never seem to be able to finish certain articles I've been writing. Some of them I've been writing for a very long time and rewriting and rewriting them. Yeah. What makes you cry? Um, when I've heard somebody or when I come across something that is uh, starkly beautiful. What have you created that you are most proud of? My children. Yeah, as, as a father, I can, uh, I can attest to that. that it's, it's crazy how they change your life, man. Like, yeah, I mean, in ways you can't predict. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What is an unpopular opinion that you have? That I think the political domain and ideological conflict is, is not, not where we will be able to solve the problems that are besetting us, the meaning crisis and the meta crisis. That is exactly the wrong place to try and solve these problems. We'll do one more from here. Pet peeves. <laughs> Pet peeves. When people make pronouncements without reflecting on the appropriate philosophical and historical background, that really bothers me. That is deep. I'm going to have to listen to that one a few times. I like that. I like that. So how can people connect with you? Where can they find you online? So I have a channel on YouTube where they can find my, my series, my, my biggest series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which is about a lot of the stuff we're talking about. And then you'll find some smaller series. Uh, there's Untangling the World Knot, which I give with Greg Enriquez on consciousness. There's one that I'm doing with Greg and with Christopher Pietro called The Elusive Eye, capital I, on the nature and function of the self. I'm going to start releasing that next week. Um, and then you have my ongoing dialogical series where I try to practice, exemplify, and enhance this dialectic into dialogus that I call voice with I love it. I encourage everyone to check that out and I will definitely include links to those in the show notes. Dr. Verveke, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on the show today. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed myself a lot. It's been great. A lot of fun. Thank you, Arpreet.